Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Darshan Shah, and uh, he was recommended by a good friend of mine as his clinic is uh, really doing cutting-edge stuff. So I'm having him on the podcast to find out what he does at his clinic and how he's able to extend people's life. He's a well-known health specialist, surgeon, author, entrepreneur, and founder of Next Health, the world's largest health optimization and longevity clinic. He has performed over 1,500 surgical procedures and advised thousands of patients on how to optimize their well-being and extend their lifespan. Dr. Shah completed his medical training at an accelerated program at the University of Missouri and the Mayo Clinic, earning his medical degree at the age of 21. Wow. Very bright guy. He has also earned alumni status at the Harvard Business School and Singularity University. So first of all, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here, Joe. Thank you. I, I love the work that you're doing. Awesome. Let's say I come to your clinic and say, hey, Dr. Shah, I want to extend my lifespan. Take me through the journey a little bit. Yeah, what's interesting, Joe, is that this whole lifespan extension conversation really just started happening over the last eight years or so. I think I've been a doctor now for 30 years. And for a long time, it was like, how do we, how do we treat disease? How do we what pills are going to work the best for these diseases? And people knew that's not the way that, that your relationship with your healthcare provider should go. And I found myself sick myself as a physician. I've been a physician for 30 years. 10 years ago, I was probably the sickest I've ever been in my entire life. I stepped into this field of functional medicine, longevity medicine, just trying to treat myself. I was uh, 40 pounds overweight. I was autoimmune diseases, high blood pressure, high sugar levels, all of it. It was all going wrong. And I think a lot of longevity has to do with, number one, avoiding getting into that disease state in the first place, right? Through that came Next Health, which was one of the first longevity clinics in the United States. We opened eight years ago in Los Angeles. And I think we just changed the conversation from, you know, going to your doctor for when you're sick to how can my doctor help me live a longer lifespan? and health span. Like we want to, we don't want to just live 30 years longer. We want to have 30 good years where we can think and move and lift weights and go out there and have fun. So that's what we really focus on doing. So I could take you through all the steps if you want, like when you first walk into our clinic, how does that sound? Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So what are some of the things, yeah, I come to the clinic and what are the first things that you do? You do some blood testing, you take down a questionnaire, Okay. Yeah. Do you do a genetic test as part of the standard or? We do. We do. Not as comprehensive as yours. So we are definitely going to be moving to South Dakota, I think, uh, to, really, to really understand in a much more deeper way. But what we do is a full, we call it physical, a full executive physical is what we call it. It's a combination of testing your genetics, doing a thousand different biomarkers, blood biomarkers, urine biomarkers, and also scanning. So we do a full body MRI and a CAT scan of your heart. And there's different kinds of CAT scans of the heart we do, depending on your risk factors. But we can then combine all that data and get a really good look under the hood of what's going on with your health. And obviously we do questionnaires, not just questionnaires, we actually sit with you and understand what is your diet like? What is your sleep like? What is your, what is your 
exercise routine, all of that. And with this information, we can formulate a plan based on 12 aspects of your health to improve all 12 aspects. And that's how we, that's how we start. The whole testing program takes about three hours. It takes about two weeks, three weeks to get the results back. And then we sit down with you in a room and we go over the entire plan. Okay. Let's go through some nitty gritties now. Like somebody, what do you commonly see as things that are, you, you, you get a lab test and Hey, like you, there's, I've seen it myself. So I'll look at lab tests and I see uh, trends of, okay, for example, homocysteine tends to be high a lot and it's something you can easily control for. So what are the things that you look for that you see that are often pretty high? And then how do you control for it? So let's like, let's go through yep. like a list of things that you see are high and that are, you can prevent, meaning these are going to directly hurt your health and lifespan. Absolutely. I'll tell you what's most common that I almost end up talking to everybody about is number one, we see some degree of insulin dysregulation, insulin resistance, hemoglobin A1C being out of whack, insulin levels being high. And almost always I recommend my patients wear a continuous glucose monitor for 60 weeks, just so we can really understand where is our glucose curve? How often are we spiking? What's our average glucose level? So that's number one. Number two, we almost always see micronutrient deficiencies. And usually there's some genetic relation as well to those two. Like you mentioned, homocysteine, we see vitamin D deficiencies, vitamin B deficiencies, methylated uh, deficiencies, and in other micronutrients as well. So even though some people are good about supplementing, they still don't really supplement in the right way. So we're, we're talking a lot about that. Number three, we see a lot of, of ApoB being high. And unfortunately, there's a kind of an epidemic of hyperlipidemia. And we really try to just, we don't tell everyone like, oh my God, you have high cholesterol. You need to be on cholesterol lowering medications. That's the last thing that we do. But we do talk to people how to manage their cardiac risk. I would say number four on the list is we see a lot of gut issues, a lot of either leaky gut, gut hypersensitivity, those type of things, gut and gut symptomatology as well. And lastly, I would say, depending on your age, we see hormone dysregulation a lot, and whether it be your sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, thyroid hormone, adrenal hormones. So we see a lot of that. And this is like a common constellation in almost everybody. And this is better than anybody, Joe, is like the sooner that information and the sooner you attack it and you start to manage it, the less your ship sails in the wrong direction, right? Like you, you want to keep your ship aiming in the right direction towards longevity. And the sooner it's the long game, you can keep it in the right direction. And so that, that's where we spend a lot of time talking about those. Now, we also discover a lot of other things too. Mold poisoning, Lyme disease, heavy metal issues, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's a ton of different things that we find that they don't, most people just have vague symptoms and their regular doctor, they just don't have the wherewithal to diagnose these things. And so we can find these in our lab testing. Awesome, awesome. So I love all that stuff. Let's talk about, I want to talk about the specifics of each of those factors. So I wrote each of them down and I think we could dive into each of them because let's say, let's talk about insulin, for example. I'm curious about what you want to see, insulin, hemoglobin, A1C, fasting, glucose. What kind of levels do you want to see for insulin? So Josh, this is the critical thing to know here. There's two critical things before we dive deep into each individual number. One is 
that there's an optimal range, right? So there's a range where you're optimized and then there's the abnormal range. It takes 20 years to go from optimized to abnormal. And most of the time, Western medicine won't tell you until you've reached the abnormal range because now it's time to really start giving you medications to treat it. So we do a lot of education with our patients. Like here's where you want to be and here's where you need to head, what direction to head to. I call it becoming the CEO of your own health. These are your KPIs on your dashboard that. that you're following, right? So we want you to become the CEO of your health. And the second thing is that there needs to be a cadence in which you check your blood work, right? Once a year, in my opinion, is not enough. I try to get people to check the basics at least quarterly, sooner rather than later when things are out of whack. On glucose, this is where we have an incredible amount of data that we can optimize for. It's in the last few years with continuous glucose monitors and the blood testing just really becoming more available, we can really manage for metabolic disease. And metabolic disease has always a precursor to heart disease, to Alzheimer's, to autoimmune dysfunction, all of it. So number one priority is managing metabolic disease. Blood tests, we measure hemoglobin A1C, 6.5 or above is abnormal, but we want to get people as close to 5.2 as possible. And even below is okay, it's okay. People had, most people we measure so somewhere between 5.6 to 5.9. Yep. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, just so it, it becomes a little more concrete to people, right? The hemoglobin A1C, you could see my screen. So yeah. I've been measuring hemoglobin A1C since 2012. Amazing. And you could see, and you could see what, what's happening with my hemoglobin A1C. You see it went up to 5.7%. You want to, under, yeah. to understand why it's because I was starting to take high dose niacin to lower my lipoprotein A. And one of the side effects is insulin resistance, interesting enough. So okay. you could see, and then I lower off of it and you could see it's going down. And recently I got it down to 5.2, which is the number that you said we have the cutoff as 5.4%. Whereas if you go to the doctor, what the doctor won't tell you anything if it's like six, a lot of times. <laughs> right. yeah, and even 6.5 is when it raises an alarm. And this is such a yeah. great graph, Joe, because you can see how quarterly testing makes a huge difference. If you hadn't checked in June of 2023, you would have lived at 5.8 for so long on that high dose niacin and not even known it. Correct. Exactly. Joe, this is incredible for you to have this data because most people don't realize almost 20% of people have a genetic predisposition to having a high lipoprotein A. Most primary care doctors, I hate to say it, don't even measure for lipoprotein A. And so they never find out. And lipoprotein A is particularly dangerous because dietary interventions and lifestyle interventions don't really work to lower it. Some of the healthiest people Correct. I know have had a high lipoprotein A for a long time and they have multiple calcification in their arteries and even their heart valves. So you really got to manage this proactively starting in your 20s if you have a genetic predisposition. A hundred percent. Exactly. And they're, the doctor is never going to, I don't know how I was smart enough in 2012 to ask my doctor to do lipoprotein A. <laughs> Nobody was talking about lipoprotein A in 2012, but I was just like, doc, I want you to get my lipoprotein A. And somehow he didn't. And then this is a test that you only, according to Peter Atti, you're supposed to measure it once, but because he, he claims that if it's normal once, but we see that apparently it's not true because it was normal and now it's not normal, right? I think that first measurement was probably incorrect over there because if you look, you just had one normal measurement and everything else was pretty much abnormal. So someone, I don't know where that first measurement was done, but 
that might have been an incorrect one or or some other anomaly. I agree with you. Or it could have been not a good test or an incorrect measurement because you could see every other time. Even here, I'm taking a PCSK9 inhibitor to lower it, and it just wasn't enough time. But you're right. If I don't take any kind of drug, it's just going to be high, and it needlessly increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. It's like, and that's one of the things that you look for in your clinic, I'm assuming. 100%. We measure lipoprotein A on everybody. When you have a high lipoprotein A, it's a condition that you cannot really treat with dietary and lifestyle modifications. And I try to really drill that home to the, to the individuals because unfortunately you do need to get on some sort of cholesterol lowering medication because all your only strategy right now is to lower ApoB completely. All the harmful cholesterol particles lower completely with something like a PCSK9 inhibitor. And I think in three years, two to three years, we will have therapies for lipoprotein A. Uh, in fact, there's amazing genetic therapies coming out, almost like a vaccine for lipoprotein A that might be coming out. Really interesting stuff. But until then, you just want to manage it until you, you know, benefit from these new therapeutics. Yeah, Novartis, I think, is coming out with a lipoprotein A drug. But yeah. Yeah. Joe, isn't it so funny when there's not a drug to treat something that you rarely hear about that? this biomarker, what's going to happen is right. when artist gets this drug out, everyone in the world is going to go running to get their LP little A measured because they're going to be advertising it like crazy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's probably why people don't know about it because there's no drug company telling you about it. So diabetes, you have drugs for diabetes. So everybody knows. The truth is, is I, I don't know if it's even that cynical. I think because imagine you get it tested by the doctor and it's high. What is the doctor going to tell you to do if they don't have a drug for it? And, and usually... Even if they don't have, let's say most of the time you could, I, I think this is the only marker that I'm aware of that is not, meaning you could change it 20%. Like you could see that it, it fluctuates. You could change it about 20, 25%. You're not going to get it down to, to six, right? Uh, milligrams per deciliter uh, without drugs. This is only through the PCSK9 inhibitor. And the interesting thing with the PCSK9 inhibitor, I saw a study showing they were looking at if there's a extra benefit to cholesterol lowering drugs. And they only found the benefit if you had uh, lipoprotein A above uh, 13 or 14. And so that kind of, that, that solidified it in my brain is, hey, look, this makes sense because it brings down lipoprotein A better than any other drug. Are you aware of anything else that brings it down better than the PCSK9 inhibitor? No. The key is to bring down all of ApoB. So if you also have a high LDL, high VLDL, you want to bring all that down as well. And so then you would use like a, standard cholesterol-lowering medications, but PCSK9 inhibitors are really the only uh, treatment that really is effective in my view for LP little point in Yeah, and so you can see I'm bringing up my ApoB just so you see. What do you have as the optimal range for ApoB, just out of curiosity? So, so I like yeah, to these are my results. And you're pretty good. I like to keep people at 100 or less, but we also measure a really important test on people called the coronary calcium score. This is at a low dose. I've done that. Quick, great. And we measure that in everybody. And if they have any calcifications, we then also get what's called a CT angiogram. And the CT angiogram is, you can see both hard plaque and soft plaque. And if they have a if they have soft plaque and or hard plaque, then we're really trying to manage your ApoB levels as low as we possibly can go. We really try to over aggressively um, not overgrowth. We try to aggressively manage it to less than 50 or so. Um, very similar to what Atia does. We have a very similar protocol. We want to reverse plaque 
not just stabilize it. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. I got this CT score, right? This, And actually, what, I'm curious what you think about it. So this is why I'm saying like, this is, I keep preaching personalized health because like you said, one out of five people is walking around with this time bomb, this lipoprotein A, and they don't know about it. The doctor's not telling them to check for it. There is a method to bring it down and you have longevity clinics like you guys testing for it, but it's just, it's a time bomb because it's going to cause calcification. And even though I've always eaten healthy, I, there's, I have, I want to show you, I'm curious what you think of my calcium result here. This was in 2019. Okay. Uh And you could see this is not zero, zero, it's 0.6. As I understand, that's not a, a great, like, it's not a great score, right? Any non-zero score means that you've had plaque and that plaque then got calcified. So it means that you had some advanced level of plaque. Yeah, your score of 0. 0.6 is not, it's fantastic. Activity. It's not an alarm. Help you little a. Yeah, it's not an alarm fire, but it should be zero, zero. If you're not actively managing your ApoB, it's going to get worse for sure. And so you really want to make sure that you are keeping a close tab of your ApoB. The other thing I will tell you, Joe, too, is like the coronary calcium score is a super fast CT of your heart, and it's not extremely precise, okay? It's just to get an idea if we're seeing calcifications or not. So I've seen people vary. They'll get one one day, and they'll get one five days later, and their score will vary just because what phase the heart gets captured in on the CAT scan as well. I I wouldn't put too much emphasis on the actual number unless you're watching the trend. Is the trend going up? Is the trend growing? Is the trend to be stable? With the coronary calcium score, you're you're more watching trend and positive or negative. I hear you. Yeah, but still, yeah, I see what you're saying. But I guess the most concerning is just that my LDL cholesterol, my ApoB, my LPA, all were always higher. And that is something that is a preventable factor that's going to cause cardiovascular disease. You need to bring that down. You're, you could feel amazing, right? Just fabulous. I feel I've got so much energy. Doesn't matter. It's this stuff is building in your arteries slowly, but surely. And then by the age of 60, even if you don't get a heart attack, all of a sudden your arteries are not as uh, soft and they're not, they're, they're, there's the atherosclerosis. And then all of a sudden your blood pressure starts creeping up and things like that. So you have to take care of these things uh, when you're younger. And I did a deep dive on the LDL cholesterol ApoB thing because it's very controversial. You have people who say, oh, it doesn't matter. And they, so I needed to do a deep dive uh, for myself. And what the interesting study showed is that there is some benefit later in life to have it higher. But, and the reason is because it can help prevent infections in certain ways. It seems to be some certain benefit for infections, but there's Mendelian randomization studies that show causal impacts. If you have it higher from a young age, you're going to die earlier, right? Your health span is lower. And the reason is because it's building, building up slowly. And then maybe if you're 80, then maybe there's some advantage. If you're not, I think if you're not advanced and improving your immune system in other ways, which you can do, but I think like just from when, if you're 30, 40, 20, you actually want to do this then. You don't want to wait till you have a heart. Like the average age of people taking statins is like 65, 70, right? Too late then. <laughs> and then you could start arguing how much is the statins helping when you're 70 
It's a good question. Who you know? There's many studies on that, but the point is, is that for cholesterol, lipoproteins, lipoprotein A, all this stuff, it needs to be homocysteine. It needs to be done earlier so that you prevent that atherosclerosis over time. Absolutely. You said a few things there that are extremely important that we should double click on for your audience. Number one is that Western medicine is not going to diagnose this stuff until it's too late. You've already, the damage is already done. Doing this stuff in your 20s and 30s, you're going to prevent the damage from occurring in the first place. And the same, ApoB is a perfect example. Your level of insulin resistance is another perfect example. Um, so metabolic disease. Third example, that's another great example too, is cancer diagnosis, right? I always say cancer's biggest enemy is being diagnosed in stage one. Stage one cancer is fully treatable, stage three and four, now we're talking five-year survival rates, right? So we're also super aggressive about cancer screening and making sure that um, if someone is gonna develop cancer, that we catch it immediately. And so there's new diagnostics out there that most people don't even know about because on a population level, it doesn't make sense for insurance companies to pay for this. But on a personalized level, you want to do this because you want to make sure for the end of one, you, that you diagnose cancer early, right? You don't want to be a statistic. 50, <laughs> one, one out of three people die from cancer. You don't want to be that. And then a lot more get cancer, right? Um, exactly. Very interesting. Yeah. So th there's a lot of cancer markers that you could check in the blood. I've done a, an advanced cancer panel. I, I'm going to get the results. Basically, it's looking for any kind of cancer cells in the blood. That might be what you're referring to. Is that true? Yes, exactly. So there's a new test called a liquid biopsy. And the liquid biopsy finds what's called cell-free DNA. So this is DNA that's been shed from active tumor cells that are now in your bloodstream. So this is not cancer risk. There's BRCA, which is a cancer risk gene that you know about. This is actually finding cancer's genetics in your bloodstream that you have an active stage one cancer. And it's a real, I like this test a lot for a few reasons. It finds 50 cancers that usually get never detected until they're symptomatic. And it finds them earlier rather than when it's too late. You want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. I tell people, if you're the CEO of your own health, you're not going to hire a consultant once a year for 15 minutes to look at your numbers that are minimal, right? You're going you're gonna to collect numbers on a very frequent basis. You're going to collect as many numbers as you can. And you're going to look at them on a frequent basis. And you should understand them. It's good. It's fine to hire a consultant, but you should also understand what they mean as well. So I love what you're doing with self-decode because it gives people that dashboard to run their health like they would run a business, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the biggest ROI on anything that I've ever done in my life is for sure my health. I got into this the same way as you. I was sick. I was doing everything I was supposed to do, right? Following good diet, exercising. And I'm still sick. I was like, what the fuck? What the hell is going on here? Yeah. And then I'm like, well, it's got to be, let me check my lab tests, right? And then the doctor never, ever told me anything. You could see that. So you could see, by the way, that I've always been eating healthy. I tested in 2012 already. I'm like, I need my fasting insulin. And, right. and you could see I tested in 2013. Like I'm testing this as time goes on. 
And so you could see I'm already in 2012, 1.8 or what is that? So yeah, 1.8, like that's, I'm always like, I've been trying to be healthy for a long time. So insulin was always something that I think that was always fine with me. Some people, everybody's got a different genetic predisposition. Some people have the blood sugar problem, they're obese. And so you're seeing when people are obese, that means uh, like insulin is going to be one of those factors. They're producing too much insulin and that uh, puts weight on. Many people who are obese do have a high fasting insulin. However, there are also many people that don't and they're obese for other reasons. There's also many skinny people, the, the term skinny fat, that are skinny, but then they have a large amount of visceral fat and they also have high insulin levels. So this, I guess the reason I'm saying this is don't be lulled into a false sense of confidence or security just because you're not overweight. You could still have a high fasting insulin metabolic disease developing. And we see a lot of athletes in our practice. And these are athletes that are doing like ultra marathons and they're overtaxing their body and it's causing a degree of metabolic syndrome just by doing that inflammation and also high insulin levels. So these people look incredible, yet they have metabolic disease as well. So it could sneak up on you for sure. That's really interesting because you would think, oh, somebody's fit, they're running marathon, they're really healthy. All of a sudden you check their blood and wait a second, you've got diabetes, your insulin side. <laughs> What's yeah. their insulin resistant? It's, you would never think of that. I want to ask you about what is your ideal glucose range? You know what? We like to see fasting glucose like in below 100 is where we like to see it. And your average glucose for the day, somewhere between 100 to 110. What I would say about this is I wouldn't overly concern yourself with slightly high numbers first thing in the morning, because there's another thing that's at play there is a lot of people when they wake up first thing in the morning, their cortisol levels goes high. It's just a natural thing that happens in the morning. And having a higher cortisol level will also cause a release of glucose as well. So I think the key here is everyone should really consider wearing a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor for six to eight weeks and really understand like what is your average, what's causing them to spike. And this is the long game here for sure. The longer you are able to manage your glucose levels and prevent spikes and have a stabilized glucose level throughout the day, you're going to be way ahead of the game. So I use it for six to eight weeks with my patients. I use it as a time for them to re-educate themselves on their relationship with food. And I have them read a book. There's this great book. I don't know if you've seen it by Jesse and Shepe called The Glucose Revolution. Four-hour read. You learn everything you need to learn to manage your glucose curve. And um, the combination of educating yourself and the data together, it's so powerful. That's awesome. Yeah. You want your cortisol to spike in the morning. And I did, I have worn a continuous glucose monitor and my glucose was pretty good throughout. Like it's, it usually is steady at around 90. And so I think when I'm doing these tests in the morning, there's actually a healthy spike in cortisol, which by the way, this is why you need to do more than one test, right? If you go to the doctor, they do, they'll do it. They'll just do this fasting glucose and they will look at me and be like, just based on this one test, you might look less healthy than somebody with a fasting glucose of 80 or 85. But then when you look at the other tests, like HbA1c, like fasting insulin, you start to see a completely different picture that this person yeah. is much more metabolically healthy. And then also for me, I'm wearing, like I've worn a fasting uh, continuous glucose monitor. For me, I'll tell you something. It bothers me because the pin sticks in my muscle a little bit. 
So okay. I, I don't have enough fat for the pin to stick into. And so it, it like, then after I take it out, it, it still bothers me for like weeks. There's a little bit of, it feels like that pin. So I've done it once. I've done my uh, duty. <laughs> it lasted yeah. two weeks and then it fell out. But I, I agree. I think doing it once in your life to, to get an idea of what that, what's going on is ideal. And I love that you guys uh, also have that in your clinic. Um, so we went through insulin. Okay, we went through ApoB, micronutrient testing. Okay, this is a little yes. tricky because what do you test for? How do you test micronutrients? I'm curious what your opinion is. Right, so you're right. Micronutrient testing is tricky. Uh, we use a Vibrant America test that tests for both intracellular and extracellular micronutrient concentrations. So we get a much better idea of what's the cell actually absorbing. Now, what I tell people about micronutrient testing is it definitely gives us a good indication of where where you are with your diet and also your supplementation protocol. I wouldn't freak out just because you have some numbers that are low or high, but there's certain numbers that need to be managed as like vitamin B levels, vitamin D levels, and some, also some levels of other micronutrients and also trace elements as well. And so I think it's good to understand what those are and where you could fill in holes with your diet and your supplement protocol. Absolutely. I've actually found the micronutrient testing quite helpful for me. And meaning, and just checking serum levels, not the fancy stuff like intracellular, mm -hmm. just checking serum levels. I found that what was low was if I would take it, I would feel much better from it. And then you Great. obviously the, see, you see the result going up as well. So for example, I was low on B1 as an example that when I got an infection this July 31st, all of my B vitamins died. Your body burns through B vitamins like crazy. And after nice. that, I learned that I need to take way more B vitamins when I'm starting to feel like an infection coming on. So you have to check that stuff. So you check the serum levels or you just, you do the, just the micronutrient, like the intracellular with a special test. No, we do serum levels and intracellular. We do both because it's exactly what you Okay, you guys are really advanced. Yeah. The intracellular one is, we don't do that all the time because it is an expensive test, but we do at least once mm -hmm. or twice, once a year, because sometimes your extracellular levels, your blood levels will be normal, but we still have an intracellular deficiency, in which case we need to boost it further. So I would say it's a good test that you should do once a year, maybe, but you don't need to necessarily do it all the time. But when you said on your vitamin B levels, especially like you, you can see that when you're sick, you need extra micronutrients, right? Because your body's burning through them. And so that's why people go to IV therapy loud just to get IV therapies because your body needs those nutrients. And it's not just being when you're sick. It's also when you've had a poor diet or when you've traveled. Like these are all times or you're dealt with an increased toxic load for whatever reason, your body needs that additional support. Absolutely. So what I found was if I'm just exercising more, if I'm activating my nervous system, I need more B1, right? And what I found is that all this kind of dogma about you should get all your nutrients for food never worked for me. I just, I'm actually way more active and I'd burn through B vitamins like nobody's business and I cannot get enough for food. It's just a fact. My levels are low, even though I'm eating a diet high in B1. So I don't know if our soil has been depleted. I don't care what happened. I don't know what happened. But the point is, is that the dogma of you're getting all your nutrients and food, 
I think is bunk. And, and, and there's many different reasons why we don't get enough nutrients from food. The other reason, like you mentioned, like our soil is not good. Food gets transported a long way. A lot of it's processed. We just don't have enough nutrient-dense food anymore. I always say there's three reasons for micronutrient deficiencies, right? Either you're not taking in enough micronutrients. Number two reason is you're not absorbing enough. So your microbiome is not healthy and it's not able to absorb your nutrients you need. Your gut is not healthy. And thirdly is you're not converting them into usable form. So if you're not going outside enough into the sun, you're not converting vitamin D enough. If you have MTHFR, you're not converting your, you're not methylating your vitamin Ds. So there's a lot of reasons why you might need additional nutrient support. I know there's data out there that says like 80% of people are deficient in vitamin D, 40% deficient in vitamin B. I think 100% of people are deficient in, in nutrients. <laughs> and the other thing you have to remember too is we live in one of the most toxic environments that humans have ever lived in, right? We're sitting all day. The air is much more pollutant than it. Our food has glyphosate in it. So our body needs more nutrients just to eliminate the toxic burden as well. So there's a lot of reasons that unfortunately, sadly, it's hard to get the nutrients you need from food nowadays. That's interesting. Yeah. Just all these reasons it's, and maybe even once upon a time, it was also, even if everything was perfect, maybe to optimize, you could still do better with more. It's, well, yeah. it's just more optimal. Yeah. Meaning like when everything was perfect to survive and replicate. When the environment was perfect and the food was nutrient dense, people still only lived about 30 to 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You survive, you replicate. And then you die, right? So the, it, it's not meant, you're not meant to live just based on nature and eating or whatever regular food to 90, 100, which is what most people want to live these days, healthy, right? And we're, you're, we're obviously dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff. I've recently discovered a test that I think is a game changer. And I don't see a lot of people testing this. I'm curious if you haven't tested. If not, you should include it. Do you do amino acid tests? We just started looking at amino acid testing, actually. Vibrant is actually providing that test as well now for us. And uh, we've tested a few patients, but not in any sort of volume or anything. Yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on amino acid testing. Game changers. So the reason I actually got interested in amino acid testing is because my team and I, were, we were starting to find a lot of research studies that showed, for example, like this, if you have higher levels of this amino acid and genetically higher levels of this amino acid in the blood, then it's, it, then it's correlated with this, meaning there's a causal impact on levels of amino acids in the blood with all different kinds of conditions. And so I'm reading these things one at a time and boom, and we have these genetic predispositions, which is cool. So we have a lot of these genetic predispositions for amino acids in self-decode. Still, obviously, it's better to check what actual levels you have in the blood. So the, the genetics is one thing, but you still want to check if you can. So I did, I did these amino acids. I did the amino acid tests, and my diet is like all meat. Like I'm mostly eating meat, okay? And I was still deficient in a bunch of amino acids. Interesting. And I made changes based on this stuff, and I had huge, it, it was like very significant impacts. So I can show you. And by the way, when you supplement with it, you raise your levels, right? Okay. So I'll show you what that looks like. And you could, uh, we, we have all this information included in self-decode. Basically, it'll come up. If you put a patient in here, it'll come up in self-decode what the, like 
went to test for an amino acid and what it means. But I'll give you an example, okay? So I tested histidine. I tested this three times. October 19th, November 4th, November 9th. <laughs> and the reason I tested it twice in the beginning is because I want to make sure that it's not a fluke, right? I'm like, okay, sure. let me continue this. And so you see, histidine was low twice. What the hell, right? I eat a high protein diet. I'm eating mostly protein. Mm. And why is my histidine low? And it turned out, and, and there's, there's re good research on histidine that histidine turns into histamine. And I need right. more histamine in my gut and my brain because in the brain, it causes wakefulness. In the gut, it causes stomach acidity. And I always felt like I needed my gut to be more acid. And so what I did was I supplemented with hydrochloric acid, apple cider vinegar, but I was like, these are kind of band-aids, right? How do, yeah. what, what's the underlying cause of, of my lower acidity in the gut? And, and this is a hypothesis of mine. And all of a sudden I see histidine is low and histidine converts into histamine. And I just connected the two. And so what I did was, you see the third test, I took 1.5 yeah. grams of histidine, my blood level go up, okay? Ooh. And I'll just tell you just a, an interesting experiment I did. I took it at 9 p.m., which was not the best idea. I could not <laughs> go to sleep until 9 a.m. It kept me up. And I'm usually like, when I'm, my circadian rhythm goes and I get tired, boom, I'm like, I'm out like a rock. I fall asleep in one to two minutes. This thing kept me up for 12 hours, no matter what, like I could not go to sleep. And what that means is I was so, like I was very deficient in this histidine. And when I took histidine, it just all of a sudden boosted this histamine production. Now, I want to show you something else really cool. When I took histidine, I want to show you something else. Vitamin B6. Okay. Wait. Vitamin B6. Oh, okay. My vitamin B6 was always tended to be like 70. And again, it went down to this 13.5 when... July, this is just July. I, like I said, we were, I'm burning through B vitamins. I, I, I tested a bunch of times, 70, 70, 70. I, I think it just probably doesn't detect it after 70. I don't know, but it's, it's consistently 70. All of a sudden, November 9th, when I took this histidine, I was doing these, I was taking histidine. It went down to 9.6, no infection. This is the only B vitamin that tanked. Every other B vitamin huh. stayed up. Meaning when I have an infection, Every B vitamin tanks, every single one, biotin, B12, B9, just the whole shebang. Okay, I can show you each B vitamin. This is the only B vitamin that tanked, B6. It turns out the vitamin B6 is a cofactor for histidine, to, histidine decarboxylase to create histamine, and it also deactivates histamine as well. So if you're taking more histidine, all of a sudden my body was starting to burn through vitamin B6, right? And so that's really cool. And you see this in my blood, like the histidine levels constantly low, my B6 constantly high, and the minimum 1.5 grams a day, all of a sudden I'm using up that B vitamins in a very productive right. way. And I noticed like more wakeful, more energy. And again, this is just from this histidine amino acid. And I looked at some other people using uh, histidine. And they were normal. So why do I have this abnormal? I have no idea. I think maybe there was one other person that had low, but the point is you have to check for it, right? Yes, absolutely. And you would have never known. 
I was going to say a lot of times people have, even when you're eating a lot of protein, if you have a pancreatic enzyme deficiency, you don't break down those proteins enough to those usable forms. So you're like a human chat GPT over here. This is, yeah. So this is exactly why I do this testing. Now, what I find with testing is there's almost no diminishing return so far. Like the more I test, the more information I get. Okay, I get this. Like I got so much interesting information about how my body responds. So now when I start getting sick, I know exactly all the nutrients that start tanking when I start getting sick. And then recently I actually, so three out of three times where I started getting sick these days, I knocked it down each time. So I didn't end up getting sick, which means that this new protocol that I'm doing is working very well. I've done a deep dive just like you, but I think for me, just being a practitioner, I try to get people to focus on some of the big things. And you've done an incredible job about diving deep even into some of these amino acids and some of the stuff that you were talking about today. But I think most for most people out there, um, th there's about 12 different biomarkers they all need to follow constantly. And that takes care of your 80% of people. But then for, I think the platform that you've developed, the testing that you've done, there's a lot of us that want to know more. Once we've got those optimized, what's the next thing? And like you saw, when you start looking at your amino acids and you can in your micronutrient levels, you can really improve your energy levels, your sleep. Oh my God, it's amazing. amazing right? I want to show you, because you're thinking about this amino acid test, I want to show you uh, one other thing that I, that I thought about, sure. which is really interesting. You guys, you could use this for your practice. Really cool stuff. And by the way, we're, all this knowledge, we're inputting it into the system and it gets inputted so that the recommendations get prioritized using all this information. So it's really, yeah, yeah. The system my is goal incredible. is to build the smartest recommendation engine by a hundred X. Cause right now what you have is stupid. Oh, you have this one snip. You have this, you read a random article on Google. You have this one lab test here. You need something that really is intelligent and you need guys like you also to do the testing to go through with people, to tell people, like really guide them because that helps as well. So you have all these tools, but the guidance really helps as well. So what I wanted to show you, this is my newest discovery from the amino acids. So I actually take uh, cysteine, okay? Uh -huh. And I measured cysteine in the blood and it's on the lower end twice. It, 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 it's, it's on the lower end. Okay. In the beginning, I guess it was a little higher. I think it went lower because this is, I was actually fighting an infection during this time. And I think I used up more cysteine, but even before the infection, still not very high. And what then I looked at is my methionine uh -huh. and also lower. Okay. Now you don't want to really supplement methionine because it's like an anti-aging thing to have lower levels of methionine. Okay. But however, with that said, what is that my sulfur amino acids are low, cysteine mm -hmm. and methionine. And so I was thinking, should I take higher levels? Of, and I'm taking, by the way, NAC 600 milligrams here. Okay. Yeah. I'm eating norm protein. So this is with this. And I think I even took more NAC because I was sick or I was fighting off an infection. I didn't end up getting sick in the end, but still it's, this is when the infection is gone and, I, and my, uh, my, oh, my methionine is still lower. My cysteine was still lower. Yeah. So recently, what I found was in the past year and a half, I've been exercising a lot, very active, just like doing a whole bunch of stuff. And what I found is as time, like 
my tendons are, I have big muscles, but my tendons aren't holding up, weren't holding up as well. So I was finding I was getting like a little bit of pain in, in certain tendons. And so people who were following me on Instagram, they saw that like I was trying out BPC. I'm, I'm very public with everything that I'm doing, right? Trying out BPC. I've been mega dosing collagen. It didn't help as well as I would have liked. So doing the, all the normal stuff that you would normally do, like for tendons, like collagen, we actually have a bunch of recommendations here. But what I saw is my amino acids, my sulfur amino acids were low. So what I decided was I'm going to take uh, MSM. So MSM is basically donates the sulfur and it lowers the burden. Instead of taking methionine and cysteine, I already take 600 milligrams. Okay. I could up the dose a little, but instead of doing that, let me take sulfur because that's also a rate limiting factor for collagen production. All of a sudden, all of so I took five grams of MSM. All of my tendons started to heal very fast. Yes. So powerful. And it was like just super <laughs> powerful. Super. And yeah. again, why did I think of that? Because of my sulfur amino acids were low. You could see if somebody's, and one of the other things I also did, by the way, is to increase my methionine. Instead of taking methionine, I'm taking higher five grams of TMG to yep. convert my homocysteine to methionine. It's thing, and it was magical, the MSM. So that, that's another thing. All of a sudden, I... Basically, I could work out for four hours. And the thing is that my muscles and everything could handle it, but my tendons were the weak point. And all of a sudden, now my tendons are not the weak point anymore. Like, it's just mm-hmm. that sulfur I was putting. And so what I did is I, I looked it up, and it turns out that when you do a lot of exercise, your body is using up tons of methylation and sulfur amino acids. You're doing a really good job yourself. You found so much out over the course of time. And just this amino acid test, like you said, are, are incredibly eliminating. Um, it makes such a huge difference. And it's all in the data. And it's sad that most people don't have access to this. But I think with platforms like yours, they get access. And I love the way you've organized the information. And what I really love about your platform is for everything you say, there's four or five data points. Click here to go to the study, which is fantastic. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. And for something like mood, I want to just show people. This is actually a new feature. So I I just want to show people if let's say you're in a a mood report. So people know about the, the, you get the risk. So you see, I have a low, a risk for low mood, which usually will mean like lower serotonin because that's the main, one of the, the major amino acids for mood. I have this risk here. Yeah, And that's something I've struggled with. And then you have 157, yada, yada. Okay. A lot of them have to do with methylation, like SAM E. And by the way, those recommendations, and a lot of them are genetic based as well. So for example, I'll just show you one thing. For me, for example, I do very well with 5-HTP. And one of the reasons, it yeah. seems like I have a, a variant in the tryptophan hydroxylase 2 gene that doesn't convert the tryptophan to 5-HTP as well. So you could see this yeah. information here, which is why I prioritize 5-HTP higher and 5-HTP helps me a ton. So 5-HTP, tryptophan, all that stuff. Now, like I was showing you before, you could look all the lab tests related to mood. So let's say if somebody has a mood issue, they don't know what lab test to get. You could look at all these lab tests and we tell you, here's the lab test you should get. And then you could see if they're in the optimal range. And then obviously working with a clinic like you guys is ideal, right? Because you can yeah. help walk people through that and, and that's ideal. And, and your knowledge is great. And so 
What I like to do is I think I love to see people who are really knowledgeable and then people like you using intelligent software together, you doing the testing, right? It's such a game changer. People have no idea how much they can really like just change their body in every way. Fully agreed. Fully agreed. I think when people can explain what they're seeing on these dashboards and help people access these treatments that we have like in Next Health and using the data that you provide um, in these beautiful dashboards, it's just such a perfect combination for people. So, so glad to see the work that you're doing. And um, thank you for having me on. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And I'm going to visit you. You guys are in LA, you said, right? Yes. We have three clinics in Los Angeles and one in New York. Okay. So when I, next time I come to the U.S., I'm going to definitely visit you guys. And yeah, I just, I, I would love to go through the testing, see, chat with your team. Really love this stuff. And the more testing I do, the more information I get. How you do testing every three months? Yeah, we do biomarker testing every three months. We don't do the full panel on everybody. We hone in. But right, right. And once a year, we do it the full panel. What about on you yourself? How often do you do it? Yeah, I do it. I do my full panel like probably once every six months I'll do it because I'm mm. really trying to optimize. So I want right. to check all that close to it right there too. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, I love this. Just for everybody to know this Dr. Shah really knows his stuff and yeah. very impressed by him. I didn't know him before the podcast. He was just recommended as somebody that was knowledgeable and I like to see for myself. And it turns out that he knows his stuff, right? It, it's there's ninety nine percent of people in this industry don't know this stuff, just unfortunately. And so I love seeing people who really like I could just see it the lab tests, the numbers, what these things mean, how to optimize them. What I mean, doctor, it's a shame. Doctors they go to medical school for all this time and they don't know anything about this stuff. What like it's nuts. Like you were a doctor, you probably didn't know this stuff and you did a whole bunch of your own research and you discovered all this, right? Yeah, I think what happens is you learn a lot of the basic science to know what like amino acids are, what methionine is, what 5-HTP is. You learn the mechanisms and the biological processes, but then everything is so disease focused. So unless there's like a, a, a disease that's being caused by that pathway, you really don't focus on it. You know what I mean? And so focusing on it when you're not in a disease state like you're doing, there's so much improvement that can be made. People live many years at 80% of their potential, 70% of their potential, and they don't even know it. And doing the lab testing early and more frequently and doing a deeper dive gives you the potential to live at 100%. I love that. I love that. So where can people find you uh, if they want to know more? Yeah. Two places. So we have a website, www.next-health.com. And my Instagram handle is at DarshanShawMB. So follow me on Instagram. Um, I'm always posting stuff like this. And also um, you can come visit us at Next Health in Los Angeles and New York. Awesome. And I want to, when the next time I'm in LA, I'm going to definitely visit you as well. Joe, I appreciate it. We are happy to have you and we'd be excited to host you there as well. So please come by. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, 
but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.